The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, coming to you from where else? My home in Zurich, Switzerland. This week, I spoke to my former boss and our illustrious co-founder, Hugo Dixon, who's holed up in London. Hugo wrote a great column this week detailing how taxpayer-funded bailouts in response to the pandemic are likely to encourage excessive risk-taking in the future. This may provoke new populist backlashes when the bills need to be paid. Yet unlike during the 2008 financial crisis, there's little talk of so-called moral hazard. That seems to be because those receiving bailouts now were not to blame for the emergence of COVID-19 in the same way that banks were partly culpable for the previous financial crisis. But the support packages are so far-reaching that many who don't meet the obvious definition of poor and deserving are going to get cash. What's more, if investors, companies, and countries think a sugar daddy will always ride to the rescue, they will take less care to manage their finances conservatively in the future. I also checked in with Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong to discuss the strange public absence of North Korea's leader. Kim Jong-un, says Pete, is as unnerving in absentia as he is in person. Take a listen. Welcome, Hugo. Great to have you back. Um, the team writing some pretty interesting and incisive columns about the coronavirus. How are you feeling? Are you cooped up? Um, well, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, it's obviously, it's intellectually completely fascinating, uh, mind-stretching, uh, terrible. But so far, I'm okay, and my loved ones are Okay, so in, in, in that respect, I'm in a bit of a bubble, which is, which is good. Um, and um, this is, everyone has to see what they can do to, to contribute in this yeah. time of trouble. And so I, one of the things I decided I maybe could contribute a little bit is to, is to you know, come back and write a few columns and think about crisis. I mean, obviously, we've looked at crises in the past. I mean, many crises. I mean, my career mm -hmm. as a journalist, I mean, the first thing I did um, when I was a, a young 21-year-old uh, at The Economist Financial Report, I had a, a, a double-page spread every fortnight called Rescheduling Roundup for the Latin American debt crisis of the mid-1980s. And then, of course, we had the tequila crisis, in the, the 1990s, the Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s, and then with breaking views, that was the, the, with breaking views. Obviously, we had the TMT crisis. We, yeah, we seemed to, we seemed to bounce from the early years from one crisis to the next. Um, pretty much as soon as we uh, opened the company's doors, we had the dot com bubble, the dot com crisis. Indeed, indeed, it was. It was. I I, I remember saying to Eddie Chancellor, who's also I, wonderful to see, he's back writing. Because um, he thought that the bubble was going to burst. I said, you may well be right. We were a dot-com, but you've got an each-way bet. Um, if you're wrong, your share options will be worth a lot of money. And if you're right, you'll be an intellectual hero. Well, one of those was true. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, that, but actually... Well, that then, was then, then, we had the, then we had the crisis. We had 9-11, obviously. Yeah. And we had... You had the, uh, I guess the next big one, obviously, was the great, the, the, the great financial crisis. And that's prepared us all a bit for what we're going through, don't you think? 
I th yes, and, and of course, the, the sec sort of perhaps the second leg of the great, you know, credit crunch was the euro crisis. It was a slightly different, but I mean, the two were sort of very much, you know, cheek by jowl. Um, yes, obviously, this is a health crisis. This is not a crisis that originates in the financial system, um, but it is a crisis that has massive financial implications. And it's also a crisis which, in my view, um, we are more vulnerable to because of all the debt that is um, swooshing around the system that was left by the last crisis. In fact, what's astonishing is how much debt has gone up. Public debt, government debt has doubled, according to the IIF, since in the last 12 years. Uh, corporate debt has gone up 70%. This is, of course, if you remember, the credit crunch was caused by too much debt in the system. One would have hoped that, you know, the debt would have come down, but no, it's gone up. And that means um, two things, really. It means that um, we're going to have to I mean, there have to be lots more bailouts at the moment. I mean, there were going to have to be bailouts anyway as a result of coronavirus crisis. But um, when you have a situation where so much of the corporate sector is indebted, the public sector needs to ride to its rescue even more than it would have needed to do if there'd been more equity in the system rather than debt. The second consequence is, of course, that the public debt, which is already incredibly elevated, is going to go through the roof. And then we're going to have to think, how are we going to deal with all of that? How is that debt going to be paid back? Is it going to be defaulted upon? Is it going to be forgiven? Is it going to be rescheduled? Is it going to be inflated away? Is there going to be austerity? Um, or is there going to be lots of tax? And I think that, I think we'll see different things in different parts of the world. But I think in a large, large parts of the developed world, the answer is going to be, or the sense, the most sensible answer will be more tax. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you, one of the pieces you wrote yesterday uh, or this week was basically that we're storing up lots of trouble. All of these bailouts, all the rescues. I mean, you've ticked through some of them. I mean, what, you know, what would you, how would you sort of rank them in priority? Like, what are the things that the biggest bits of trouble that we're going to have to face? In, and so, and when, and we and does it really matter? I mean, like, what what do you the other argument is, well, what do you do? Nothing, I guess. I mean, I think there are two types of trouble. Let's say there are the, there's, there's the trouble that's caused by um, uh, too, too much debt or, 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 or the increase in debt. And then there's the trouble which is caused by perverse incentives. The sort of moral hazard question. The moral hazard. Um, you know, governments riding to the rescue of companies, central banks riding to the rescue of governments, and therefore um, everybody taking the view, well, we don't need to run our finances in a sensible way in the future because there's always going to be a sugar daddy coming to rescue us. Um, and then I would say there's a third, let me say there's a third thing, which I actually haven't really written about, I wrote a little bit about um, yesterday, but um, which is the political backlash. Um, I mean, one way of looking at this crisis in its entirety would be to say that we start with a health crisis, we move into an economic crisis, and then 
who knows, we may move into a political crisis. And depending on how that political side plays out, which will obviously be influenced by both the health and the economic crisis, um, political crises can be even more damaging than economic and health crises. I mean, we, we, you could argue that the rise of populism, Donald Trump, all of that was the political response to the financial crisis or to the mistakes made during the financial crisis. And so what you're saying is we'll have some of that, but it'll be more, worse, or however you look at it, more uh, radical. Um, uh, it could be. I mean, it, I mean obviously, the, the, the thing that's, that's really terrifying is to look back to the 1930s, where mm. you had a, an economic financial crisis, different parts of the world, different things, hyperinflation in Germany, depression, global depressions, whatever it was. And then, my God, did you have a political crisis, Oof, the rise yeah. of fascism and the Second World War. Uh, now, that's, okay, that's, that's, let's say, that's a really, really, really worse situation. In terms of where we are today, I think it's possible to look at, um, you know, I think a lot will depend on what happens in the US elections. Mm -hmm. um, if, um, I mean, Trump isn't having a good corona crisis. No. Uh, when you compare his approval rating to other leaders like Giuseppe Conte or even Boris, or Boris Johnson in the UK, I mean, he, has he got a little bit of a bump, but he's now back to where he was in the low 40s. That's right. And so uh, if you wanted to be optimistic, you could say that you might end up with a new US President Biden who will be prepared to convene some sort of new global, you know, let's say a new sort of Bretton Woods mm -hmm. that will allow us to actually pull the world together in a sensible way after this without having to go through a massive political crisis. If you wanted to be pessimistic, you'd say that Trump might yet win and Trump 20 might be a more virulent, mutated version than Trump 16. Yeah, no, he'd be, un he'd his, his, you know, he will have passed through impeachment. He will have passed through the second mandate. He doesn't have to go for, now, uh, he, he doesn't have to campaign for 2024, although um, who knows how far he might go in, in trying to <laughs> upset but, convention. Yeah, and maybe Ivanka will be for, for Trump for 24, or, you know. Don Jr. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know. I think, I think that, I think, but, but again, if you want to look at, if you want to be, I mean, what's, what's quite interesting is how um, different leaders around the world seem to be faring in this crisis. And there's a sort of, possibly the beginnings of a sort of separation of the sheep from the goats um, that we're seeing. And it may be that this will be rewarded in the ballot box. And, and if it is rewarded in the ballot box, it could be that what you actually have is, is that, that one consequence of this could be that the public starts to think that serious, sober yes. politicians are the sort of people you want to run your country rather than flash populists. So, for example, I mean, 
who's getting kudos? I mean, he, you mentioned Giuseppe Conte. I mean, he's, I mean, nobody even heard of him a year right. ago. Right. Um, and I, he seems to be doing quite well and Salvini not doing so well. Well, but there's a whole movement in, by the way, in the coalition that supports Conte to kind of get, prepare to get rid of him. But yeah, but that's Italy, as you know. Sure, sure, sure. Italy is, Italy is I mean, actually, if you want to look at what is, what is a risk factor for, the, for, 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 for Europe and more for, for the world, I mean, Italy is still out there as a big risk factor. Um, Germany, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody would say that Merkel is a flash populist. We don't know the end of this story yet, but of the big economies in Europe, Germany seems to have done um, the best so far. Of the small economies in Western Europe, um, actually one of those that's done the best is Greece, mm. where yeah. they, they went very fast into lockdown. I think it's about, a, there are 11 million people in, in Greece, and I think the number of deaths is about 140 at the moment. Now, uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, who's the, the prime minister of, of Greece, nobody would say he is a sort of flash populist. He's a sort he's of... He's a McKinsey sober. guy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think he was McKinsey, but he's a serious, sober, you know, technocrat, really. Right. Um, and, and, and there is perhaps, and, and his approval rating, I mean, I was talking to someone in Athens this morning who's... And, Apparently, it's in the 60s, in, way up in the 60s. They've, they've never had anyone with such an approval That's rating amazing. In, in, in Greece before. Yeah, I mean, you do have some, I mean, the Denmarks or, I mean, even here in Switzerland, you've seen a, a sort of more sober, technocratic um, response to the crisis. I mean, but those countries are, these are, for the most part, not, they weren't, they weren't characterized as populist nations, you know. I mean, I guess it's France. France is a great example where, you know, the, the French, French government has, uh, has seemingly done pretty tight lockdown, tried to do everything it can. The numbers aren't great. But n- no matter what, Macron st- still seems to be having, you know, still seems to have an approval rating in the, if he's lucky in the 30s. Yes, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it, the, 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 the French situation, I mean, I... I I suppose that it will be the next presidential election is likely to be Macron versus Le Pen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we have to see, I mean, because I, 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 I'm, my, my, I, I think that there is a big risk. I mean, this is, this is gonna go on for quite a long time, right. this crisis. Yeah. And that's the problem is so that even, even if you do, or have, are perceived to have done moderately well in, in the first phase, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be able to continue to do well in the subsequent phases. Right. And so um, we may well find that there is a big populist backlash or some sort of political backlash coming down the road. Yeah. I mean, and so moving up a little bit from the politics to the, the other point you brought up, which is just sort of the the, the issues with moral hazard, for instance. I mean, that was the subject, main subject of, of your column this week. I mean, where do you, how do you, how do you see, how did the, how do governments mitigate that concern? How do they, how do they get ahead of that problem? Is there any way? Because right now it seems to be an indiscriminate rescue of pretty much everything, including, you know, the jerks and the, 
the, the irresponsible and everybody else. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's very, very hard. Um, I think, look, first thing is, I think that I'm, I, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't be bailing out people. I think we have to. Um, second thing is that um, clearly the more you can actually think through these programs, um, the more you can have time to think these things through and to debate them, the better chance you will have to design them well. And in economic theory, um, this sort of moral hazard, the, the, at least at high level, the best way to avoid perverse incentives is to share the risk. Right. So if, if you can find some way of making sure that the, you know, the person or company or government or whatever maintains some of the risk, then there's less likelihood that they will go off and, you know, spend the money foolishly and, you know, and, and defraud you or cheat you or whatever it is. Now, that's easier said than done because, um, I mean, take the, for example, the government supporting companies through banks. Um, banks don't want to lend money, a lot of banks anyway, don't want, want to lend any money to mm. companies. And so they're saying to the governments, you've got to give us 100% guarantee. As soon as you go to 100% guarantee, then there's no risk sharing. However, um, you can do some risk. I mean, it seems to me that what I said in my column is that if you look at, I mean, we come back to Italy. Italy is, is, is the big risk factor in Europe because its debt is so elevated and it hasn't really been growing much for the last couple of decades. Um, it needs a bailout, but the bailout that it's got has been largely through um, the European Central Bank making it easier for Italy to borrow more money. Now that, in a sense, it kicks the can, but what it also does is it helps keep Italy a little bit honest because it doesn't quite know how the game's gonna end. Is the game gonna end with Italy having to tighten its belt say, for example, massive taxes on wealth or something like that? Or is it going to end by Germany and the richer countries somehow bailing it out? Or is it going to end by the ECB? Well, the last is, what about quitting the euro? Isn't that always an option too for the Italians? That is, but that's not good for the Italians either, particularly, right. if, particularly if you think that, that there's a lot of, although, although it's not been growing, there's quite a lot of wealth in Italy. There's a lot of private wealth and a lot of public debt. And if you're the holder of that private wealth held in euros, you don't want them suddenly to be turned into lira. Yeah. With a say a 30% or 40% devaluation. So it's, so, so there's still quite a lot of tension. And so, so what, all I would say is, I mean, at a very, very grand level, big level, there is in a sense the, I mean, it's, it's a messy situation, but there is, and I'm sure it could be done better, but there is some risk sharing going on in the it, Italian situation at the moment. So that's one way you can mitigate is by having risk sharing. Another way you can mitigate, and I think this is really, really important, is to make clear that these are one-offs. <laughs> How do you make clear they're one-offs? Because particularly say monetary policy. I mean, the problem is monetary policy we have had with Greenspan the Greenspan right. put with Bernanke, 
the Bernanke put every time. The yellow put. I mean, there's just it's been a put for twenty years. Yeah, for twenty or over twenty years now. Yeah. And so the problem is, if the if the central banks say, yeah, 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 we're gonna we're gonna be fine, and we're gonna return to normal. Do you really believe them? But they, we, I think we do have to get back to normality, both in monetary policy or in fiscal and in fiscal policy. Um, and the more credible a regime that governments and central banks can put in place, the less traumatic the return to normality will be. We don't want to have to go through a sort of 1970s inflation, stagflation period, followed by a sort of Volcker having to come in um, and you know Thatcher having to come in in the UK. We don't want to have yeah. a sort of full fall. Bitter, bitter medicine for 10 years or eight years or whatever it took. You don't want to have that if you can avoid it. Um, and then the other thing is, I think, is just coming back to this private debt, the corporate debt, particularly the corporate debt. Um, I think we need to wean people off their debt, companies off their debt addiction. And, you know, this has been a long theme over many, well, let's say a couple of decades of, of breaking views columns is Indeed. The, 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 the tax deductibility of interest payments. I mean, this is an incentive for companies to leverage themselves up to the gills. In fact, yeah. I might write a, another column about this if you're interested. It, it's, but it may be finally that we're reaching a time where, um, where governments will see that this could be an interesting idea. I mean, obviously, there are some parts of the corporate sector, particularly the private equities um, um, part of it, that have exploited this tax perk for all its work. Right, and are now receiving uh, abundant rescue capital as part of the PPP and the other programs that we're seeing around the world. Indeed. And, and, and some people will say these are assets. I mean, if you look at it from a sort of a, 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 a uh, from, from the people's perspective, they'll say, this is a bit like, you know, this is asset stripping. These are asset strippers who go in, they load companies up with debt, they take out mega dividends for themselves. And then, oops, first sign of trouble, um, they need to have massive bailouts. Now, it could be that a way forward is that this, the, the politics might finally line up and people might say, well, look, let's get rid of that um, tax perk, the tax deductibility of interest payments. That will disincentivize companies from becoming over leveraged. It will incentivize them to put more equity into their balance sheets. Um, and at the same time, it will raise cash and therefore it will help us claw back some of the costs of the bailouts. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you have to think, I mean, if you look at the, the, the way that this argument has been framed is it's not, it's nobody's fault. No one could see it coming, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that is, or certainly President Donald Trump has made that case in, in sort of sanctioning two, three trillion dollars of bailout money. But I mean, there is a sort of, there is a fairness question to that. Yes, that's true. But certainly, we're going to have to come back with that you could have been more resilient. There are those people who were, went into this thing. I mean, forget a pandemic, just a little bump in the road could have taken them down to bankruptcy. And yet now they get saved. I mean, so certainly we're going to come out with a desire for more resilient balance sheets, corporate and, you know, if possible, otherwise. But, you know, but there are other questions. Like, I mean, is it, I mean, we've sort of, done away with do losers. You think, do you, what do you think, Rob? I'd be interested in your view. Do you yeah. think that 
that the, the political stars might align for some form of leverage tax or, or something like that? I mean, we go goes back a little bit to that question about who get who where we go politically in the U.S., for instance, which is the biggest culprit here. Um, you know, I think it's quite possible that there's gonna. I mean, you are gonna have to pay for all this stuff in some way, shape, or form. And taxes, as you put, said at the outset, are going to be there are going to be more taxes and they're going to be higher taxes, a combination of both. And what a, everyone's going to look and claw back any for any possibility. Now it could be the private equity carried interest deduction, which. God, I cannot believe you and I've been debating that now for 20 years and that it is still robust and alive in the United States, if not the UK. Mortgage interest deduction for homeowners. Again, like why are we incentivizing people to take out debt on the, on the home balance sheets? And then so you have to say at some point we are going to, it, like we did after the, the bank, the bank crash, if you will, 2008, 2009, we said to the banks, you have to have better balance sheets. You have to be more robust. We said that, that was in the form of capital. Um, I, I think we're going to have to, there's going to have to be some sort of movement like that because you can't just bail out the losers all the time. This doesn't work if you even, even if you believe in capitalism. So I think it, I think it will align, assuming we don't go into some hyper populist, you know, complete anarchy run by lobbyist form of American government, which can't be entirely <laughs> um, off the table, I'm afraid. No, I think I think that's I think that's right. I think I mean, but just look at some numbers. The corporate uh, across the world, um, corporate debt is about seventy trillion dollars, um, seventy-four trillion dollars, I think. Uh, that's not that's almost the size of of GDP. Global GDP, I think, something in the well, obviously it's below that now. It was about yeah. eighty. Let's see what it is. So let's say it ends up, uh, and that's going to go up. And GDP. Well, that's that seventy-four trillion that you referred to in your column is non-financial corporations. Non-financial so, corporations. So not including banks. Not including. Yeah, well, banks, of course, but banks always are, are complex right. because they've got the giant balance sheets. And 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 we we may need to come on to the question of banks. But um, one of the one of the good things that came out of the financial crisis is that banks were required to have fatter capital buffers and liquidity buffers. You could say that now we need to do the same for the non-financial corporates. Um, if, you, if you said that 70, I think $74 trillion, if you could get, um, if you could get say, I don't know, half a percent of that a year in tax. Wow, yeah, there you go. That is, um, do the maths. $370 billion a year. Now it starts to, that starts to be, and that's not going to be enough, by the way, because we, I don't know what we're going to need, but we're probably going to need, a, we're probably going to need to raise a, 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 in the low trillions of dollars of, of or at least, a, a, let's yeah. say, I would thought we're going to probably need to raise one, a couple of trillion, let's say a rough number, a couple of trillions of dollars um, in, in tax or in expenditure cuts. And I, I don't think that people are going to want to have expenditure cuts because I think- Expenditure one cuts gets you down to the populist, uh, almost certainly. But also the, the, the coronavirus has, is, is teaching us, I think, that people feel that we need to have better public goods. Public health so the system. idea that we're going to actually reduce the quality of public goods again, I don't think that there will be much appetite for no. that. 
right. so we're going to need a, let's say we're going to need a couple of trillion dollars of of taxes around the world well well let's see if we can get say we can get 400 billion from from that's a, a good whack that's a good whack that's a good whack yeah yeah i think it's coming i think you're right all right well hugo it's uh it's delightful always to speak to you um and uh and get your views for the podcast this week uh we'll get you we've got we've got other commissions we'll talk offline about some of your ideas here very but, good uh, stay healthy stay sane well, and i'll talk to you i'll talk to you soon it's lovely to have connection with the the great breaking views readership they, they love they love hearing from you again so don't be a stranger <laughs> bye bye hey pete how are you hey rob i'm great how are you man i'm all right i'm all right so um we're going to talk about not about coronavirus. Woohoo! We're going to talk about the other problem that uh, the world has to worry about, which is the where's Waldo for of crazy despots. Where is Kim Jong Un? That is a great question, Rob, and I wish I knew the answer. Um, you don't know, but nobody. Well, I keep on calling him. I, I call him for the story I'm writing about him, and he hasn't answered. But I mean, look, he missed a big event on April 15th. It was the birthday celebration for his dead grandfather, Kim Il-sung, who founded North Korea. Um, the great leader. That's supposed to be, yeah, that well, that's the original number one guy. And so that's, that's kind of a big miss. He hasn't been in public since. North Korean media has not been vocal about him. So um, obviously this has set off a bunch of speculation about like, did he have a heart attack? You know, is he, is, what, what happened to the guy? You know, he's not he's not been spending a lot of time on the treadmill, quite clearly. And Reuters reported that a Chinese medical team had been sent there to consult. So the rumor mill is is running wild, but nobody knows. So something very bad could be in the offing. And so how how is this being perceived, say, in Beijing or in Seoul? Is there alarm? Are they counseling that there's, oh, it's okay? We hear he's okay and there's no right problem. Right now they're signaling. You mentioned there's no troop buildup or no giant movement along the northern border or the, of, of the Seoul, South Korea. Yeah, South Korea took the trouble this weekend to say that they have not seen any of these, these sorts of movements in North Korea. Even Donald Trump said he has some idea where he is, which seems to suggest that- Yeah, that was kind of bizarre. Care. Why was, well, Trump was sort of like, didn't say, <laughs> he said he couldn't tell anyone or something. Yeah, well, this is why the intelligence officers were reluctant to brief Trump, right? But, uh, but yeah, who knows what he knows or, or thinks he knows. But I mean, the point is that more seriously, the South Koreans don't seem to be that up in arms. You know, Chinese social media is full of speculation as it is, but, but that's just because of the personality. But in fact, it's entirely possible the guy just got a tummy tuck or, you know, is just really hungover or doesn't feel like going out. You know, he can do that's whatever the hell. That's a big hangover. I mean, if, if you're talking about, you know, 10 plus days of hangover, I mean, that's that's some serious baiju. I mean, is, isn't it, is it possible that he actually has COVID-19? And we don't really know. We know South Korea, of course, had an outbreak, which was handled with, with relative aplomb. But I would just wonder, I mean, why wouldn't, sure, the DMZ is not exactly porous, but you wonder if it wouldn't have also crept across. I mean, North Korea is the most socially distant country on the planet, probably. So if he got it, he got it. He went out of his way to get it. It's possible. They say they have zero cases. That also seems a stretch. There is a fair amount of movement, a little bit of movement, at least across the Chinese border. And northern, northern China is where there's a big breakout right now, right, because of returnees through Russia. But the other theory is that he had a coronary problem, that the surgery was fumbled, 
and that he is in, you know, that he's in a coma because of heart surgery, which is kind of designed for people to be more credible. But the point is, like, we don't know what's going to happen. We'll find out. OK, um, yeah. So we, we can't we don't need to speculate on. I mean, yeah. he's just he's out of view. It's created speculation. We're trying to figure out. But I guess the bigger question is, all right, so let's just who cares? Like, it's, as you say, the most socially distant you know, country, the hermit kingdom, and it has no bearing really on commerce. Why do we worry or why should we care about who, whether he goes or whether his sister or some other person takes over? Well, I mean, the problem with North Korea is when you, well, with any authoritarian state, when you have a transition of power, violence is, is usually a high risk. Whenever Kim passes away, if he does so young, like if not this year, five years from now, he'll still be very young. These succession problems are still there, right? He doesn't have an heir. And like with all, all these people going back in a nuclear armed state um, that's opaque, you know, violence inside the country, outside the country is quite possible. Whoever takes power through that mechanism will feel very insecure. If I, just to remind people, Kim Jong-un, when he took power, was in his 20s. He opened up with like a bunch of missile tests, doing some really obnoxious stuff, which analysts said at the time was, was you know, intended to secure his back inside North Korea. But much of that violence and posturing was, was outwards. So anybody who had hoped that like the North Korea story has kind of settled down and Kim is on his way to building the country into more of a China-like garden variety, command economy, communist country, you know, like that would all get thrown off. You know, South Korea, China, the U.S. are all on kind of different policy pages here. So it would just be a mess. Right, and right. yeah, nobody's doing a lot of business there, but uh, it would. nobody wants it right now. And clearly people need to start thinking about, you know, what would happen if it happens. But obviously there's not that much we can we can do. So basically the real concern is be careful what you wish for. Well, we know whatever Donald Trump called them, little rocket man, right? Because, right. And, you know, but they all had, a, they had a sort of detente. They met. Um, Donald Trump crossed the border. I mean, it's not obvious that there were really any concessions made by North Korea on the nuclear front, but nobody's been worrying about that relationship or that frayed relationship for some time, for better or for worse, right? Right. Well, the hope is that Kim is basically gradually waking up to turning North Korea into a version of China, where instead of like this kind of uh, single family dynastic kleptocracy that's like counterfeiting U.S. dollar bills and stuff, like he opens up to investment infrastructure, um, starts normalizing trade with South Korea and just kind of becomes like a not problem. You know, it's a very strategically located country, piece of real estate right in between China and South Korea. Just by not doing terrible, crazy things um, and having Kim sit there, everybody sort of was hoping to win. But like if he dies or becomes a vegetable or whatever, like the cure, you know, as much as people don't really like the guy as an individual, a succession struggle, you know, would be even more uncertain and in the short term, at least much worse than the current status quo. All right. So to wrap it up, I guess, then thoughts and prayers for Kim Jong-un and his family, because uh, who knows what the alternative might be? Buy the man a gym membership. <laughs> <laughs> Do they have gyms in North Korea? <laughs> I was gonna well, say I tell you, when this, when this virus is over, it's going to be on my top 10 places to visit. There's an investment investment uh, theory there. Pyongyang, Pyongyang 2021. All right. I think they have bowling alleys, but yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, thanks, Pete. Be safe. Be healthy. Thanks, Rob. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Hugo and Pete, and hats off to Jamie Lowe in Hong Kong and our producer, Freddie Joyner, in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. 
subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day on BreakingViews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Auf Wiedersehen, and stay healthy.